0: The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales Episode 40 Distilled Wisdom Part 1 Lucas stared into the anxious faces of some of the other drivers from the depot, his workmates. These were mostly older men, caught up by circumstance in the gig economy, stalwarts of the rank and file who would once have said this was no way to make a living, but for whom there was now no other way. They had all taken to Lucas, particularly as the energetic lad began his tenure at the delivery company by not only taking whatever shifts he was given without wheedling or complaining, but also any routes the more senior drivers didn't want. None of them were sure what kind of foreign Lucas was, but he was a good, hard-working kid, quick and easygoing. The company's letting you go a big man called James said. Lots of companies are having their foreign worker quotas audited, and so, to avoid the trouble of that and whatever else it might expose about the company's practices, they are letting you go. They were going to tell you when you next reported to the depot with a little surprise. Surprise? Someone from Immigration Services would be there to meet you, James finished. The company would avoid further investigation and their next tax filing might go a little more smoothly because they'd have a compliance incentive on their books. Lucas knew what that meant. Detention in one of the government's contracted facilities and deportation, if he was lucky. He'd read things. Some unmarried young men without families never made it to the plane. George here overheard what the plan was while he was putting in his completed deliveries and clocking out. We couldn't let that happen, James went on. We've seen the stories too. You're a good kid, my son's age. It's not fair. James shook his head. He looked at the young man standing before him and wished the world, or at least his country, was different. People like Lucas took the work few others would do and gave more than anyone imagined. God knew that if the plant hadn't closed up shop and moved overseas, he and most of the others wouldn't have set foot in the depot. Lucas stood in the circle of concerned men. As he came out of the van, he'd brought all his belongings with him, one small knapsack plus what he was wearing. His uniform was neatly folded on a box inside. It wasn't his, but it had been his to look after. "'There are a few parcels left, I'm afraid, things that needed signatures. "'I was going to try again in the morning before I got my next load,' Lucas explained apologetically. "'We'll split them between us and get them delivered,' George assured him. "'George was ex-forces until he'd been invalided out for post-traumatic whatever they called it. "'Not what he'd served for, this.' "'James took a thick, grubby, recycled envelope out of his pocket.' It was full of cash, mostly smaller bills, but Lucas could see that it was a decent sum. James handed it to Lucas. Lucas didn't reach for it. "'Of course the company will tell you to go swing for your last pay.' So the lads and I had a whip round and...' James offered the envelope again with a questioning look. "'I can't take your money!' Lucas cried, deeply touched at the gesture. "'I just have to look after myself.' "'You all have mouths to feed.' "'Looks like you could use a bit more of that yourself, feeding,' "'observed Eddie, the oldest of the group, "'who was suddenly troubled by something in his eye. "'Take it, lad, and good luck.' "'James pressed the money on Lucas with his left hand "'and offered his right. "'Lucas tucked the money inside his jacket, "'shook hands with them all, "'and thanked each one for watching out for him. "'Then he breathed deeply.' "'shouldered his pack and disappeared across the car park, "'over the verge and into the darkening woods. "'He looked at Rosamond's silken band around his wrist. "'It blazed with the shape of a fiery arrow. "'Lucas followed. "'Wherever it led him, he had nowhere else to go. "'Before he found a place to camp for the night, "'Lucas signed into the Vale, grateful to see his friends. "'He told them he was homeless, probably thanks to herself. What, not you too? Oh, Lucas, I'm so sorry. What are you going to do? Isabel asked anxiously. Thanks to the pendants Mikola, I mean, diarmid gave me, I can keep a low profile staying in woods and traveling around unseen, but my phone battery will die and I dare not go anywhere public to charge it, or at least I can't go anywhere for long. So my contact might be pretty unreliable, or it might be radio silence soon. Diarmid touched Jack's phone, then Isabel's, bringing a thin arc of light into Lucas's device where it flared and settled. His battery read full. What did you do? Lucas asked. You've heard of cloning phones in TV shows, so the cops or spies or whoever can monitor their target's activities? I kind of cloned your batteries, so that as long as your phones have power, Lucas will have the same amount, and will recharge when you do. Just until we find him a home. Last I looked, trees and bushes didn't come with outlets, Jarmid smiled. But the cap and boots will let you move quickly without detection, Lucas, and the silver tent will keep you comfortable. Maybe leave off the joy rise on the carpet for now. Remember to replace all the bones in the bucket after you eat but I hope you don't get sick of herring. Impossible, Lucas assured the immortal smith. Watch yourselves. I'll be back as soon as I've seen my sister safely home, Diarmid said to the three companions. They were seated around a low table in a pleasant Japanese garden in the vale, surrounded by cherry blossoms and hanging scrolls of calligraphy. Jack started at the phrase, then shook his head rather stupidly, "'remembering that he had always known Diarmid as his uncle. "'You're the king this round. "'Tell a tale that cheats death, lad. "'One of mine, if you like,' he winked. "'I will,' Jack agreed. "'I think you'll feature as a theme for a while. "'Before you go, I need to ask you something, a favor. "'What is it?' "'Isabel and Lucas moved together, "'then away to afford the pair some privacy. "'But Jack motioned them to stay.' My mother shall get a place at least as good as the cabin in her story, right? a place of her own on the edge of fairy eye, all green and pleasant as ever she wanted on the borders of her wildest dreams. I finished it myself a while ago. You knew she would die. I knew that if any world would be her death, it would be this one. Jarmed said gravely. It's a fine place I've made for her, and if she ever sees sense, the whole thing converts to a caravan pulled by fairy horses with three verses of Gypsy Rover. Should I tell her, do you think? You know how she loves to sing. D'Armed lapsed momentarily into a bemused, mischievous reverie. Jack laughed in spite of the pain in his heart. When I get home, will I be able to see her, to visit? I should hope so. She'll play merry hell with me if you don't. The signed out of the veil and disappeared. We'll leave you to prepare, Jack, Isabel said, giving him a hug. She and Lucas logged off. When it came time for Jack to tell his story, Baba Yaga looked for signs of contrition, or at least mourning. She found none. Jack seemed in very good fooling as the saying went, as if he hadn't just lost his only family at a flick of her skilled but indifferent hand. She was mildly unnerved, to say the least. She'd been expecting a blubbering mess she could bend to her will. Jack seemed very much in possession of himself. Their surroundings were described as some kind of abstract still with pipes and tubes and taps carrying and regulating streams of the story in liquid, dissolving words all around them. In one place, the dripping liquid formed a blossoming apple tree that bore the story of its growth and fruit. In another part, the droplets formed tools and fell with the sound not of water, but of a blacksmith's hammer on an anvil. In another place were whispers of seemingly never-ending prayers coursing through spirals while the central pipe flowed like a river, home to a leaping, flashing salmon around whom the tale ended, only to begin again. Welcome all, Jack began. Tonight's story is about cheating death and fulfilling life. It's about besting one's demons and not being afraid to tell the angels in your way when to take a walk. It was one of my uncle's stories. Broadly, it's known as Godfather Death. I think there's a Polish version about a doctor who heals many people over his very long and pious life by giving them some of his excellent homemade beer. I know that one, Lucas piped up. This one is my uncle's tale. I always thought it was about him. He just called it the Tinker, and as your surroundings might suggest to you, many a longer tale starts with a wee drop, or in this case, the inability to get one. Once there was a Tinker, a talented and hard working fellow who could mend almost anything. He lived with his wife in a tiny cottage. In their youth, they had lived traveling the roads from place to place. But now they were getting on in years and decided to settle. They were very poor, and they feared the cupboards would soon be bare unless their luck changed. One day, the tinker was called to fix a still in the next valley. It was a good job, and he was paid handsomely. Three silver pieces, more money than he'd had in any one time in his life. He dreamed of all the food and fine things it would buy. On the way back up the hill path towards home, he met a wailing beggar all dressed in grey rags. "'Alms for the love of God!' the miserable object cried. Obligingly, the good tinker parted with one of his silver pieces and left the beggar with his blessing. He hadn't gone far before he met another pauper, as reduced as the first— The poor creature pleaded for charity, and the tinker handed over another silver coin. Very soon his path was blocked by yet another piteous, wretched beggar. When he asked for charity, the tinker replied, "'Honestly, were it just me at home, I'd give you this whole silver piece and chance my luck to heaven. But my wife is at home, and we are in sore need of provisions ourselves. How about I give you half?' He offered to snap the silver piece. Charity not wholly given is not charity at all, moaned the beggar. All right, all right, the tinker said hurriedly, quickly proffering the coin. I didn't mean to offend. Take it with my blessing. I'm sure I'll find another way to provide for me and mine. Suddenly, the beggar cast off his rags and the tinker found himself in the presence of a radiant angel clothed in pure light. Good man, the angel said, your kindness toward your fellow beings has reached the attention of the Almighty, who would see you rewarded in this life. I was to test the limits of your generosity, and if your selflessness rang true, offer you any three wishes. Choose wisely, for once a wish is voiced, you cannot recall or change it. The tinker was, for all his rather marginal existence, A decisive and confident man, not one to dither over details when he knew what was needed. Oh, I, well, that's easy. I've spent all my wages in this trial and have nothing with which to buy supplies. I wish to come home to a happy wife who finds her pantry full to overflowing. It shall be done, the angel promised. And you see here, the tinker said, turning slightly and indicating the bag draped crosswise over his body. This is my tool bag. A craftsman is nothing without his tools. Yet every time I go to reach for a specific tool, can I find it? Is it where it should be? Not on your everlasting life. The tinker went on passionately. Hasn't someone just gone and borrowed it without telling me, and I have to constantly beg around to get everything back? That's time I could spend earning my living, so I want you to make it so nothing goes into or out of my tool bag without my say-so. It will be as you request. You have one more wish. Use it well, the angel responded. By my wee cottage, in my tiny garden, there's a splendid apple tree that produces a marvel. Do I get the benefit of a single piece of fruit from it, let alone the bulk of the harvest? Not a bit of it. The village lads steal them all, though I'd give bushels to every village family if they were left for me to pick. So I want you to make it so that if anyone save me tries to pick an apple, They'll stick to the tree until I let them go. It shall be as you have wished, the angel confirmed, though if we angels had wishes. I would that you had chosen nobler gifts. The angel disappeared with a disappointed sigh, though the tinker was well pleased. He fairly danced down the path heedless of the gathering fog and change of terrain, until the ground beneath him became so boggy, he nearly lost a boot to the squelching mud. The devil take me if I ever pass this way again, he cursed aloud. When the tinker got home, his wife greeted him in high delight, showing off their miraculously replenished stores. But though they lived carefully, Supplies dwindled again, and soon the tinker and his lady were once again staring at the prospect of starvation. By and by, he was called to fix another still. Though not remunerated quite as lavishly as the last time he was engaged in such work, the tinker was well satisfied with his wages. He was heading home, once again lost in happy thoughts, so that he failed to remark the same boggy shortcut until it was too late. He looked down at his mired boots, and then up suddenly, blocking his path, was the old Nick himself, twirling his tail and tapping a cloven foot impatiently. You swore when last you came this way the devil could take you if you did so again. Well, here you are, and I've come to collect. The tinker had to think fast. Well, your honor, that's well and good, but to get to your home we will have to pass through my village, and people are rather prejudiced against you, begging your pardon. You'll need to go in disguise. What do you suggest? A monster? A snake? I do excellent S- serpents, if I do say so myself, the devil replied with more than a trace of pride. No, they're not well disposed to those sorts of things, I'm afraid. Say... Why don't you turn yourself into a little piece of lead and I'll slip you into my tool bag here. We'll get through the village without raising so much as an eyebrow. The devil agreed this was a fine plan. He screwed up his face, concentrated, and poofed himself into a small, evil-smelling lead bar. The tinker picked it up gingerly and deposited it into his tool bag. He passed his house and thought of his dear wife, but continued on to the forge. The smith had several strapping apprentices, who were this day out in the fields mending the fence around the horse paddock. They were banging posts into the ground with mallets. "'Lads,' the tinker called, "'come here. I think there's a foul, poisonous creature in my tool bag. Could you smack it with your hammers so I know it's safe to open?' The young men thought this an odd request, but the tinker was a good fellow, and so they obliged him. He removed his tool bag and put it on the ground. They took turns battering it soundly, and as their blows fell, there were sounds of painful protest from within the bag. After a time, these turned to pleading whispers then to groans. Ow! No! Stop! Ow! came a beaten moan from deep within the bag. That's enough, lads. Thank you. I'm sure between you all, you've sent whatever lurked within to its just reward. He shook hands heartily with each of the apprentices, and they went on their way. You can come out now, the tinker whispered loudly. There was a desultory puff of decidedly black and blue smoke, and the devil appeared, swaying and bloody and much the worse for wear. That's it, Tinker, the devil pronounced. Yours and mine will have no dealings from this day forward. He disappeared, a sad little fart of bested malevolence. Suits me, the Tinker said, happily turning for home. The Decameron shuffled four of hearts. And so that's how the Tinker used an angel's good wish to get one over on the evil one. Do you want to know what happened when he found death on his doorstep? Jack's setting, the distillery of words, was described as dripping liquid into a large beaker. The beaker's contents resolved into smoke, and the smoke became the robed figure of the Grim Reaper. Baba Yaga was about to reply when Jack cut her off. I shall continue then, he said. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kosar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamook First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.